Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. So to get started, let's talk a little bit more about toxicology and what toxicologists test for. So generally speaking, what does a toxicologist test for? Drugs and poisons. And so what constitutes a drug and a poison or the difference between the two? So a drug is a substance that alters your physiology or your psychology, and they change how you think, feel, or behave. They're distinct from food. But generally, we think of poisons as substances which cause death or illness when ingested. And Paracelsus, who is called like the grandfather of toxicology, is basically paraphrased as saying the dose makes the poison. So everything can be a poison depending on how much you take or are exposed to. Water can be intoxicating. I've actually seen deaths from water intoxication. Okay. Well, then what instances require testing by a toxicologist? When are they brought into a situation? So... Where I worked at the coroner's office here in Colorado Springs, any death that was sudden or suspicious got an autopsy. And then all of those cases got a toxicology test. Um, unless it was like an 80-year-old who fell off a ladder and they were still brought in because it was a sudden death. But then the medical examiner could use their own discretion and say we don't need a toxicology profile on this person. But just to be fair and to not seem like we were working for anybody and picking and choosing who we mm -hmm. did tests on, everybody got a toxicology screen. Okay. And so I guess first question for this episode, what would be the most poisonous thing that you can think of or that exists out there? Okay. The most poisonous thing on the planet is the botulinum neurotoxin. Okay. <laughs> the neurotoxins produced by Clostridium botulinum are the most poisonous substances on earth. Most recorded cases of botulism are from improperly canned food resulting in food poisoning. Botulinum bacterium spores are naturally found in, in water and soil, and in the absence of oxygen, so like in a canned food, mm. they germinate and grow and excrete the toxins. So the spores themselves don't tend to be dangerous, but then when they are in, in an anaerobic environment, then they become toxic. It's the byproduct. Yeah, Got essentially. Him. And it's actually surprising how few people die from botulism poisoning. And actually, it's botulinum poisoning. So the disease is called botulism, mm. but the poisoning is botulinum poisoning. Okay. okay. But it's surprising how few people die from it, considering how poisonous it is. So the most recent results that we have from the CDC are from 2017. And in 2017, there were only 182 confirmed U.S. cases which were reported to the CDC, and that's compared to 199 cases in 2015. That's relatively small for something so toxic. Yeah, and like something that you kind of think of as a common concern that you might have. Mm -hmm. And of course, not everyone reports their sure. illnesses to the CDC, sure. but if there's a major outbreak, then it has to be reported. So, like, it's roundabout this number. Okay. And of those 182, 141 were infants, 19 were foodborne, 19 were wound botulism, two were iatrogenic, and one was in a suspected adult intestinal colonization, and that was the only one that resulted in death. 
That sounds terrifying. <laughs> so how poisonous is this stuff? A lethal dose of the toxin, right? Not the spores. It all depends on the route of administration. Okay. An LD50 value estimated from a primate study says that if you ingest it orally, 30 nanograms can kill a person. If inhaled, it only takes 0.8 to 0.9 micrograms, and intravenously or intramuscularly injected, it only takes 0.09 to 0.15 micrograms. Would you expect, explain <laughs> to us lay people out here <laughs> a little bit more about LD50? Sure. So the LD50 value is a number that's determined through experimentation, and that is the dose at which 50% of the experimental population died. Okay. And so there are other values, like the smallest amount that it took to see effects, the mm. smallest amount at which there were no effects, mm -hmm. but the LD50 value is the value at which 50% of the population died. And so again, this is in primates, mm -hmm. and you can take what you will from primate studies because sure. animal studies obviously are not one-to-one -one for mm -hmm. humans, but that's what we have. But lethal dose for 50% of the population. Yes. Perfect. Yeah, and so of course that means, you know, it's, it's based on... Um, how your body deals with toxins, the size of the person. So all of these numbers, I think, are based on a 150-pound person, approximately. Okay. So you, you're really tiny. Like, <laughs> it would take less, less. to kill you. <laughs> it's unfortunate. It's yeah. unfortunate. <laughs> okay, but just, just so that people have an idea of what these numbers are, because I said, like, nanograms and micrograms, and most people do not work in that small of a number. Most Americans probably don't even really know what a gram is unless they're buying weed, right? right. So, <laughs> um, for just to get a visual, a quarter teaspoon of sugar is one gram of sugar. That's pretty small. One gram of sugar is approximately 0.6 milligrams, which is 400 times larger than a fatal intravenous injection of botulinum toxins, and 2,000 times larger than a fatal oral dose of botulinum toxins. All right, so we're talking very, very, very minute. Very minute. Okay. I can't even really no, think about how very small, small that is. <laughs> So, and that goes back to me saying, like, it's crazy how few people yeah. die considering how, how poisonous this is. Yeah, because if you need 400 times less than a grain of sugar and it's that fatal, that's insane. Yeah, and then some more stats on this are, again, assuming that the average person weighs mm -hmm. about 150 pounds, it is estimated that it would only take... 54.6 grams of pure botulinum neurotoxin, so just over a quarter cup of sugar, to kill all 7.8 billion people on Earth. Holy smokes. <laughs> and while most cases are accidental, I mean, mm -hmm. I think most people are familiar with botulism as an mm -hmm. accidental thing, mm -hmm. there are actually a number of sources that are concerned with using botulinum as a bioterrorist weapon. And so this number is actually of major mm -hmm. concern. Yeah, I mean, if something so small could kill everybody on this planet, yeah. potentially. Mm -hmm. So what are some examples um, of it being used as a bioterrorist weapon <laughs> or some case studies about that? Sure. So the earliest use of botulinum toxin I could find was actually in a video from the CDC about the history of bioterrorism. Okay. And they first described the botulinum neurotoxin being used by supporters of Pancho Villa in 1910. And of oh. course, they, they wouldn't know that it was, you know, botulinum neurotoxin that they were mm -hmm. using, but they were, of course, aware of botulism. And so what they did was they took pork and green beans and they put them in containers and then they buried them. Oh. And then they contaminated food with it. 
And they contaminated some weapons with it. So if they, like, stabbed somebody, oh. then they would get that wound botulism. Yeah, so on top of being stabbed <laughs> and that being a terrible thing to go through, let's just infect that wound and make you even more miserable. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So and- they didn't really understand the science behind it, but they knew if we do this with food, put it in the ground, yeah, it'll grow. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then the Germans started developing botulinum neurotoxin in World War II. And there's this really weird story that's also in that CDC video that says that a hand grenade that was used by Czech patriots was used to kill the head of the Gestapo in 1942. They were employed by the British to carry out this operation called Operation Anthropoid. Okay. And I tried looking into this, and the video does say, you know, inconclusive or unsubstantiated reports. Mm -hmm. But it's also like... This is a video from the CDC. Right. Why are you telling us this if it's unsubstantiated? So it was, it was a really weird rabbit hole I went down. There has to be something to it, though, for them to even mention it. You would think. And the report actually said that it wasn't just that the hand grenade was contaminated with it, but that this guy, Rein, Reinhard Heydrich, actually died from botulism wound poisoning rather than from the shrapnel killing him. Oh. So it was the infection itself that yeah. he later got, yeah. not the shrapnel tearing him apart. Right. The infe- Okay. Yeah, and so the Czech soldiers who had fled to Britain during the war or had been sent there fortuitously, and then they were working with the Brits, they worked with the British to attempt to assassinate Reinhard Heydrich in 1941 on Czechoslovakia's Independence Day. But eventually, because of various things coming up. I don't know anything about military action, but I assume that like they don't always go as you plan. Sure. And so <laughs> he actually wasn't killed until 1942. And on May 27th, 1942, he had an invitation to see Hitler and was on the way to see him in Prague. And they had heard about this somehow. And so these two guys who were part of Operation Anthropoid struck. A machine gun was initially used to try to kill him mm-hmm. and that failed for whatever reason okay and so the backup plan that they practiced in britain was these hand grenades that were anti-tank hand grenades oh. that they modified somehow. big deal yeah yeah okay. and i don't know what it means for them to have been modified because again i don't know anything about the military and i saw pictures of them compared to like regular hand grenades not made if somebody's you know, garage, garage or right. wherever this was and it, it did look differently so i don't know if the modified was that it was not a normal anti-tank mm-hmm. grenade, or if it was modified with botulinum poisoning. I don't know. They took this out and they lobbed it underhand at the car and missed. <laughs> and it, it got part of the car, and so Hadrick did end up with shrapnel in him. And then the, the guy who threw the bomb actually ended up with shrapnel oh, in no. him. And so, you know, they, they run off, they actually take off on bicycles. Okay. And then Hadrick, he actually had to, like... um he had to have somebody else help him. Like, his driver was able to drive off, but it took a while for him to get medical attention. Okay. And it, it might have been because he was a Nazi. I don't know. <laughs> but, <It's> um, <laughs> so he, he was taken to the hospital, and they worked on him immediately. And I actually saw a report that showed, you know, what his reported vitals mm-hmm. were at the time and all of that. And then the guy, the guy who was hit with the shrapnel who threw, threw the bomb, mm-hmm. he went to be treated by a doctor. 
And then that doctor was found out by the Gestapo, and he, like, leaked the information about Operation Anthropoid. Oh, no. And so then when Heydrich died on June 6th from his injuries, the Nazis were pissed, as you would assume they would be. And so they destroyed the village of Lidice, I think that's how you say it, which is 15 miles from Prague, and they didn't find the assassins because they weren't there. And so then they destroyed this other village, Luzaki, because, I mean, they were just trying to be like, we're going to kill people if you right. don't come out. Right. And eventually they threatened to decimate all of Prague, which obviously oh. would have been a higher body count. Sure. And during the raid on Prague, all of the members of Anthropoid either shot themselves, were killed during the raid, or they were sent to concentration camps. Oh my god. Yeah. And I actually think, I think it was maybe one of them was sent to a camp, and he actually survived. I mean, he was obviously scarred from his... Sure. But he survived, mm. which is I crazy. mean, that's a pretty big feat. Yeah. Yeah. But... So, all of the information I was able to gather came from, like, declassified CIA documents or this report on Heydrich, the surgeries Mm -hmm. he had to take the shrapnel out, and the shrapnel Mm -hmm. ripped through, like, the major organs. It was probably fatal, Mm -hmm. and he did, he did die, but I think it was from the shrapnel, and there was nothing Mm -hmm. to suggest that he came up with any of the paralysis or the vomiting Mm -hmm. or anything that you get when you have botulism. And so, I don't know, it's just a really weird story for the CDC to, like, be saying in this video. And I mean, and even the attempt in it, you know, even if it wasn't successful, Mm -hmm. there was an attempt. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. And, like, either, either it was spread by this one guy who... He just wanted to, like, stir up shit, and mm-hmm. so he said that botulism had been used, but that could have just been a rumor, and again, why is the CDC saying it? Mm. And yeah. the the guy who threw the bomb, he had shrapnel, and he was never reported to have botulism. Right, yeah, that doesn't really make sense. Yeah, he, he died mm. in the attack on Prague. He mm. died from multiple injuries in Prague, so... From a completely separate incident. Yeah, so, I mean, it probably wasn't covered with botulism, but it's just so weird. It's so weird that, like, that's even out there. Yeah, what's the point in mentioning it? Yeah. If there wasn't something to it. Yeah, and one of the weird things is botulinum toxin is used as a bioterrorist weapon. It has been, because later it was developed by... The United States and the Soviets. <laughs> and then eventually the U.S. and Soviets gave botulinum toxin a lower priority level. Mm. But in 1975, the Biological Weapons Convention was passed, and it was signed by uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Czechoslovakia, or the Czech Republic, as okay. it came. And so that it would have looked really bad for any of them to con- keep furthering their study into it. Or to even admit that they had used botulinum mm, in a, yeah, in a bioterrorist assassination. Mm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, that would have looked really bad. So, I don't know. It's either a total rumor that one guy made up and then it got spread and then the CDC sure. dispelled for some reason. <laughs> right. Or, like, it happened and most people would want to keep quiet about that. Yeah. Let's yeah. not go tell all of our neighbors about this. Right. And keep this on the down low. Right, because... Okay, how I said earlier that it only takes 54 grams of botulinum toxin to kill all 7.8 billion people mm-hmm. on the planet. So, botulinum toxin was apparently, and this is according to that CDC video, okay. Saddam Hussein's bioweapon of choice. Oh, yeah. okay. He created 19,000 liters of liquid botulinum toxin hmm. and 85,000 liters of, or 8,500 liters of anthrax. 
So 19,000 liters, that's uh, definitely, uh, my math skills aren't there right away, but lots of grams. Yeah, lots I would, and lots and lots I would and lots assume of it's lots of grams. I don't know, like, what the concentration of botulinum sure. toxin well, is. Well, and that's a good point, too. Yeah, but that's, it's, but it, still, it's dangerous. Still, and of course, like, to no one's surprise, I'm sure, in 2020, the Iraqis got botulinum toxin from a culture in a supply house in the U.S., that we yeah. had been culturing in the 1940s and 1950s before we decided we're not going to use it. Cute. Yeah. And, I mean, we were we were concerned about the government in Iraq having botulinum toxin because the FDA actually gave soldiers a vaccine against botulinum oh. toxin in the 90s. Okay. Yeah. Because they were so worried that it was going to be used. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it, it was of major concern. Yeah. So, yeah, there's that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so there were some nefarious uses. Yeah. For, or intended yes. uses. Yeah, and the the reason that the U.S. and probably the Soviets, too, decided that they weren't going to employ it, I mean, aside from, you know, 1975, when we all agreed we're not going to do this, <laughs> is that when you make a bomb or when you just release botulinum toxin into the air, it doesn't actually last very long. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, like, if you're thinking of, you know, airborne attacks like the attacks on the attacks on the Japanese subways mm-hmm. in the 90s right. um botulinum toxin maybe if you were in an enclosed place it would do some damage but it just doesn't last in the air very long oh so it's not as effective mm-hmm. as other things that a person with malicious intent might consider yeah and okay. i mean again if you're like poncho via and you're covering your knives and stuff with right. botulinum that's a different but even if you cover a bomb in it and you're intending the shrapnel to mm-hmm. infect, like, I just, I don't know, but I don't think that that's how warfare tends to work. Right. So, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So yeah. they probably would look at other other yes. choices as a first round draft yeah. for poisons. Yeah, like anthrax, which, oh, okay. you know, Hussein was also support, supposedly <laughs> stock housing, so. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And then <laughs> this other report came out in... The early 2000s, actually, and I thought it came out sooner than that, but it came out in the early 2000s, and it really scared people. So this guy at Stanford came up with this whole scenario where he talked about the dangers of milk being poisoned by botulinum toxin. And so he described if you were to get to a tankard of milk where Mm. the the driver is, like, having lunch or something, Mm -hmm. and so the the, uh, truck is not being watched at the time, mm-hmm. and somebody were to just pour... You know, you don't need much. Right, we're talking micro... Yeah. Micro quarter teaspoons. Yeah. They described it as a butterfly chart, where you start with a bunch of cows, and then you have fewer tanks, and fewer trucks, and fewer silos, and processing lines, which leads to a single batch of finished goods. From there, they are separated to a greater number of distributors, and then more retailers, and then more consumers. So at the tank level... The milk has left the farm and is going to the processing plant. And the researchers say that even with the heat pasteurization, that only 68.4% of the toxin would be killed. And the milk would be added to other milk, which would vary the concentration, but it would still contaminate a lot of milk. And it terrified people because, I mean, he is putting out the idea that probably not a whole lot of people had thought of. But there's an importance to that. Yeah. That even though it's scary, mm-hmm. I mean, it's important to hear that because then you can come up with a solution yes. before the problem happens. Yeah, and that's what his whole point was. And, I mean, he went into some detail with it. He was talking about, like, how many, you know, 
how many silos per processing line and the time between silo cleanings and mm. things like that. Like, how many things would get contaminated? And then he went into, like, the speed of distribution. So 80% of milk is purchased within 48 hours. Uh. And then child infectious dose for 50% mm. of the population. And just to infect a child, it would take 0.43 micrograms orally ingested. And so, like, maybe it wouldn't kill the kid, but, like, their body won't be able to fight that. No, and it'll make him incredibly sick. Yes. And a lot of times, with my um, small understanding of poisons and and their effect on people, is if you can't figure out what's wrong, Mm -hmm. the survival rate... Goes yes. down very quickly. Yes, and he goes he goes on with the timeline to say the median incubation for adults and children is forty eight hours, and so after forty eight hours, eighty percent of milk is purchased within forty eight hours. Mm-hmm. Another forty eight has to pass for it to be incubated before you can realize that mm-hmm. it's been contaminated, and it's just crazy the numbers how that he fast. has. Yeah, yeah, and I mean he he has how much milk is consumed by children, so obviously he's focusing on like the danger to children. Sure. You know? Well, I mean we all remember when we were in elementary yeah. school, you all had your choice of white milk, chocolate milk. Yeah. I mean, I mean we were all drinking it every day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean this was back in 2005, and I mean got milk isn't a thing anymore, but right. like still the dairy industry has a pretty major hold on us. So it's true. Yeah. It was it was scary. It really scared a lot of people. But I mean it's. It's an issue, you know? Yeah, and I mean, and it's an important thing to think about because how can you think of ways to handle that problem? If something like that were to happen today, yeah, how would we respond to it? Yeah. So were there any precautions put in place after this? You know, I don't think that there were. Okay. I mean... Comforting. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe there were. They make the assumption that raw milk is tested for botulism the same way that it's tested for antibiotic residues. But even if this is true and it's tested before mixing, this isn't widespread testing that's done. If it was more than one person or one person contaminating multiple trucks in a day somehow, this could still be very dangerous. The solutions that the researchers suggested to avoid this were to reduce the time between silo cleanings because less milk can be contaminated that way. But ultimately, they suggest better pasteurization before distribution. And I couldn't find anything to suggest that these suggestions were ever adopted. In fact, I think the only thing that really happened were people calling for the suppression of this article. That is an incredibly terrifying. I know. I know. And <laughs> I mean, we could have made things better. But instead, we were just like, this is scary. Let's not talk about it. And let's make sure that nobody else finds out that this was talked about, period. Yeah. So, I don't know. And it's it's like, it's not just milk is his point, too. He was saying that there's a lot of things that have this sort of, like, butterfly shape to the mm. distribution where there's a lot that goes down to, like, a small amount of finished goods, and then they go out to distributors and then retailers and then consumers. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of products like that that could potentially be targeted. He was just using milk because it's a scary right. example. Huh. I mean, <laughs> yeah, any anytime you're thinking about somebody messing with your food before it gets to you, that's a little terrifying. <laughs> but again, to clear, this didn't happen. This is just... No, it did not happen. This was just something that somebody did a study about yes. to bring this, this issue to our attention. And so... Um, if we, is there somewhere we could go to look at the graph? Yes. Because I do want to look at this a little bit more. Yes. So this graph is actually going to be on our Twitter and on our Instagram. Okay. And so you can see it there. But I will also put the sources in the show links if anybody wants to go check that okay. out. Okay. Awesome. Um, and I'm, 
I'm not going to put links. I'm just going to actually cite sources. And so this is the paper entitled entitled Analyzing a Bioterror Attack on the Fluid Supply, the Case of Botulinum Toxin in Milk. Oh, what a nice light read for <laughs> a snowy it's, afternoon. It's interesting, though, you know? <laughs> I really want to see if they if they did anything. I mean, I don't think that they did, though. <sighs> yeah, but so. We digress. Yeah. <laughs> No, well, so I'll definitely, I mean, because I can see the graph, but I definitely want to look at that a little bit more because mm-hmm. it's really scary to think about how if just one tanker, yeah, one thing were touched, yeah. how many people it could potentially affect. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what are, we've talked a little bit about a couple of them when we talked about the shrapnel mm-hmm. and ingesting it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the different types of botulism that you can get? Well, there are five. Okay. So there's foodborne botulism that can happen by eating foods contaminated with the toxin. Okay. There's wound botulism that happens if the spores of the bacteria get into the wound and then the spores are, end up in an anaerobic environment. So you probably like mm. cover the wound or something. Right. Like you get cut, you're going to put a bandage around yes. it. And so that's an ideal thing to do with the wound, but you're also yeah making this breeding ground for yes. this terrible toxin. Yeah. And okay. so it breeds in your wound. Okay. Yeah. And this can also happen with people who use and reuse needles for illicit drug use. How does it get into the needle, so to speak, That, or is it it got into the wound from the needle? I think it's the wound from the needle, and so my assumption with it is just, like, maybe houseless people who are using drugs and so their needles are on the ground, or even people, like, who, who have homes, but their mm. needles are not being stored properly mm-hmm. and not being recapped. And mm-hmm. so they're just wherever, and so they're getting the dirt that has botulism, and then they're, you know, they have the wound, mm-hmm. and then the anaerobic environment is created. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if they, I mean, in all, if somebody injected an illicit drug, mm-hmm. and then they were sleeping on the ground somewhere. Oh, yeah, totally. Okay. Totally. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Infant botulism, which is different than just foodborne botulism and this is one I actually had to look into because I was like what is that that's weird yeah Yeah, and it's actually called floppy baby syndrome oh yeah okay this is when spores grow and produce the toxins in the infant's stomach okay and so that's different than what it does in an adult yes yeah and this is the reason why uh you can't give honey to babies actually oh I never really knew why I just know you don't do it yeah I didn't know either I mean because there's so many things you can't give to kids until they're like x months old Mm -hmm. or something and honey Mm -hmm. was one of them so I was just like oh whatever babies are susceptible but it's to botulism Oh. Yeah. And yeah. so do we know why honey as a food is more susceptible to to the toxin than the others? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that, like, we have concrete reasons mm-hmm. why, but we have theories. So soil and honey contamination are two recognized sources of botulinum spores. Because, like I said, botulinum spores are everywhere. Right. They're just yeah. everywhere. But extensive research has been conducted to identify other sources. Mm-hmm. So in the late 1970s, researchers actually looked at 555 samples of soil, household dust, cereals, baby foods, canned goods, a ton of stuff. And no spores were detected in anything but the honey in the soil. Oh. And the reason for that is because, so bees can actually get dust and dirt on them and then mm-hmm. take it to the mm-hmm. colony. Mm-hmm. And then if the bee dies in the colony, there's one paper that looked at how spores specifically will grow and become toxins because of the dead bees. And, I mean, that's 
a, a fairly reasonable concern, I guess, like especially considering like pesticides that we know right. are killing bees. But I read another paper that said that for most healthy hives, they get the dead bees out really quickly. Okay. And so, yes, they found that that is one of the sources of contamination, but it's probably not as big of a source of contamination. Okay. And then spores can grow in the beeswax. And then it's being held there. Yeah. Because it's not, there's nothing going on with it. Yeah. So it's just sitting there in, in the hive. Mm-hmm. In the, mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's essentially just bees bringing in these spores and then they can grow in the honey. And they're being perfectly encapsulated. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Yes. And then there was a, there was another paper I saw that said that honey from larger sources actually does go through some sort of processing, like irradiation or something like that. Okay. And so larger sources of honey probably won't have as high of numbers, but there was also exceptions to that, where these larger sources actually did have higher numbers, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I I don't know. I mean, it's it's bees bringing it in, but it's hard to say, like, what is the more susceptible kind of honey, you know? Right. Well, and it's one of those better safe than sorry. Yes. Does your Does your three-month-old baby really need honey? No. Probably not. Not so much. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so it's it's more like their guts as they get older, building more of that flora. Ah, uh, yeah, I would think so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, and then the other two kinds of botulism are adult intestinal toxemia, which is the adult intestinal colonization. Okay. And this is really rare because most people can fight off the botulinum mm. toxin. Okay. Like it, the botulinum spores before they turn into toxins. Okay. And then the iatrogenic botulism happens if too much botulinum toxin is injected for cosmetic reasons. Oh. Yeah. So it's the same Botox that people get... To get rid of those little wrinkles. Yes, yes. It's the same. Oh, scary. Yeah, it's essentially the same. Yeah, because there are different strains of botulism. But yeah, it's essentially the same thing. Scary. Okay. And so how common is this? I mean, I know we talked a little bit about the cases earlier, but Mm -hmm. it sounds like with all of these different ways, how, how often does this happen? I mean, I would say it just doesn't happen that much. I wouldn't want to be one of the 182, and I wouldn't want to be the one suspected intestinal colonization from 2007 who died because that came out of nowhere. Right. But, yeah, I would say that it really doesn't happen that often, and it looks like babies really are at the highest risk. Okay. So, so stay away from the honey. Yeah. Always a good thing. Yeah, and I mean, it's also like babies put things in their mouths all the time. Ugh. If they're outside playing in the dirt. If they're playing in the dirt or if they, right. they pick something up that was on the floor, you mm. know. And so I, that's probably where a lot of those came from. Okay. Yeah. And so what are the signs of botulism? Okay. The signs for adults, regardless of origin, are double vision, blurred vision, drooping eyelids, slurred speech, difficulty swallowing, difficulty breathing, a thick-feeling tongue, dry mouth, muscle weakness, and most importantly, paralysis, which also has to do with the difficulty breathing and swallowing. Mm, because when your lungs are paralyzed, mm-hmm. you're not able to breathe. Yeah, okay. and it's, it's your diaphragm more than your lungs because it's mm. that muscular paralyzation. Okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah. And then for foodborne botulism, you can add abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. But that can happen with so many things. Exactly, yeah. And so... I could see a lot of people just like, like, oh, I have a tummy ache or I got this quote unquote stomach flu. Right. Yeah. And, and that, if it turns out to be botulism. Yeah. Yeah. That could be scary. Yeah. And if these things are paired with muscle weakness or Mm -hmm. paralysis, that's when you have to be concerned. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And then for infants, the infants actually have really strange presentation. And that's what I was talking about with the floppy babies. Mm -hmm. So when they get Mm -hmm. paralyzed... 
I don't know. Maybe it's just that, like, you can pick them up. Mm-hmm. And, like, when people get paralyzed, they just kind of lay there. But right. when you pick up the baby, they don't hold up their head. They don't hold up their arms. So they become mm. floppy. They don't have muscle tone. And then they also, you know, have a weak cry. They can't cry oh, out. That yeah. sounds so sad. Yeah. And then, you know, they can't feed. They appear lethargic. And so mm. those are really, and I mean, I'm sure anybody with a baby, if they had any of if these those symptoms, signs, they would they'd be freaking out. Yeah, yeah. I would hope so. Yeah. I would hope so. And so how long does it take for the symptoms to present from when you ingest it, however it gets to you, Mm -hmm. um, for you to have these symptoms show up? It can show up pretty quickly in less than a day and then take up to weeks to present. Oh, so we have a nice huge window (laughs) to work with here. Okay. So I guess, what do you do if you get infected or you suspect you're infected? Okay, well, there is an antidote and it's called antitoxin. Okay, good news. It stops the bacteria's effects on your nerves, but it doesn't help to to heal the damage. Mm. And so it can stop any residual botulinum toxin from attacking your body, but you'll still have the double vision, you'll still have the paralysis Ugh. until you your body heals from that on its own. Oh, wow. And that could take weeks or months. So it's, it's again, what we were talking about earlier, you want to get it caught as quickly as possible. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can't reverse that damage so quickly. Right, you yeah. You can stop it where, it where it had progressed to, but you yeah. can't roll it back. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and then if you if you end up with wound botulism, which does happen in some surgical procedures, mm. um, then you'll need surgery, again, to clean out the wound, and then you'll yeah. probably put, be put on antibiotics, which I don't think will kill the botulinum toxin, but it'll kill whatever else could have been growing in your wound. Well, but then, well, and then that's scary because then you're killing off all your gut flora <laughs> and making yourself more susceptible yeah, to... <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of having to be put on a regimen. Yeah, all right, awesome. Yeah. And then absolute worst case scenario, you could end up on a ventilator because you Mm. can't breathe on your own. And you could die from respiratory failure, which is about how 5% of botulism victims die. Wow. Yeah. Even if you recover from being that far gone, you Mm -hmm. could have trouble breathing and experience fatigue for years afterwards because of the damage. Yeah, because you have to repair all of that and grow new cells. That's terrible. Yeah. And so why does botulism do that? And how does it act on the body in such a devastating way? So botulinum toxins interfere with the signals from your nerves by blocking the release of acetylcholine. Okay. And this is an important tra- neurotransmitter that we'll be returning to with a number of drugs. Okay, it's remembering all- it. Yeah. Acetylcholine. Acetylcholine. <laughs> okay, neurotransmitter. So important. Acetylcholine <laughs> is the chemical that motor neurons of the nervous system release in order to signal muscle activation. Okay. So when you squeeze your hand, acetylcholine. Okay. When it's blocked, it induces paralysis, which makes mm-hmm. sense. Okay. And so your brain might be sending the signals to squeeze your hand, but the signals just aren't getting there. Yeah, or telling you to breathe. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So with voluntary and involuntary movements? Yes. Yeah, because it just blocks the receptors. Period. Yeah. Okay. And botulinum toxins do this by blocking acetylcholine places in several places along the nervous system. And while the affected nerve terminals aren't damaged, the blockage of the neurotransmitter release is irreversible. So it's kind of like putting a key into a lock, and the key isn't breaking in the lock. Like, Mm -hmm. you can use the lock. But, I mean, all the people who are trying to get through the door, they can't get through the door. It just won't open. It just won't open. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There was a guy who pretty early on, his name was Justin S. Kerner in the 1820s, he actually theorized botulinum toxin could have medical use that early on because he described the damage to the nerves as akin to rusted electrical wires. Okay. And the body, 
compensates and recovers by creating new nerve terminals mm. and creating new synaptic contacts, which is why the healing time can take so long. But there is a healing time, and that's seen in people who use botulinum toxin for cosmetic purposes, but also for migraines. Mm. They'll have to have continual injections, not all together, because then you'll get that iatrogenic right. toxin, you know, poisoning. But you you have to have it multiple times because your body is building eventually new yeah, yeah. well build, oh, okay so you have to go back get another treatment after your body fixed it yeah because it essentially put a new lock on the door right because your body doesn't know we are doing this for an intentional reason mm-hmm. because we want to fix our migraine versus this was an accident yeah. and bad things happen exactly okay and so despite all of this and all the dangers that we've talked about it's still used medically? Yes. Yeah, because, I mean, it does, it is advantageous to people who need it for medical reasons. We always hear about Botox, and sure, like, there's some vanity with that, but, I mean, Mm. it can be used for people who have spinal injuries, who can't stop contracting their muscles, and Mm. it can be used for people who have excessive sweating or drooling. It can be used for bladder dysfunction. So, I mean, it does have some pretty good uses for for disorders that are caused by overactive acetylcholine. But just make sure that you have a doctor who is yeah. incredibly intelligent <laughs> and knows what they're doing with it. Because, again, going to that, that LD50, that yeah. dose, it, that could go bad quick. Yeah. If they don't know what they're doing or that... Okay. I do have some numbers here. I couldn't actually find micrograms or milligrams or mm-hmm. whatever type doses. The toxin's administered in units. Okay. And one unit is that intraperitoneal <laughs> LD50 for a female Swiss Webster mouse. So has nothing to do with humans, right. essentially. And 3,000 units is the lethal dose for monkeys. Okay. okay? So between 1 and 3,000. Okay. <laughs> a typical therapeutic injection for medical purposes is less than 500 units and is usually around 200 units. Okay. So they generally play it safe. They do. Okay. Yeah. And then, again, the downside is that your body can either create antibodies, which neutralize the toxin, or you can um, just end up having to take many, many injections because the the shot only lasts 8 to 12 weeks. I would rather um, have to go for more because you can't really go back and go <laughs> do less. So that's that's fair. Yeah. How can we avoid being one of those unfortunate souls who poisons themselves <laughs> or their loved ones? Let's drop the bioterror thing and not worry about that. But in like our everyday lives, how can we avoid this? Okay, so usually it'll be foodborne. Mm-hmm. I mean, with wound botulism, you know, it's just clean your wounds really well, I guess, mm-hmm. you know. But foodborne botulism, they're usually caused by improperly home canned food. So oh. can your food properly, I guess. Specifically foods with a low acid acid content, so if they have a pH higher than 4.6. Mm-hmm. And these are foods like asparagus, green beans, corn, things like that that have a low acid content. So not tomatoes, nothing okay. like that. And is that because the acid kills it off? Yes. Okay. Yes, the okay. acid makes it so that the environment isn't as inhabitable. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, but there have been cases of improperly canned goods, including tomatoes, that have caused outbreaks. So, I mean, you just got to really make sure that whatever you're canning is canned properly. Okay. And you can sterilize your home canned foods by boiling them in a saucepan for 10 minutes. And that's for altitudes below 1,000 feet. So, okay. if you and I were to can something, we would need an extra minute per 1,000 feet of elevation, which means 16 minutes of boiling for us. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 
And then storing baked potatoes in foil, which... <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> My husband, his family, when we go camping, they always try to make potatoes for the next morning by cooking them on the fire in oh. foil. Yeah, we used to do those. We always yeah. call them hobo potatoes. Yes. Yeah, okay. It terrifies me now. Oh, because, okay. <laughs> because I've always been so weird about botulism. And, uh, like, he's obviously never been poisoned because he right. keeps doing it, but I'm like... <laughs> Could you not? Don't tempt fate. Yeah. (laughs) And even, like, if you, like, bake a potato and you have leftover potatoes and you put them in the fridge, the Mm -hmm. reason that it's dangerous isn't because of aluminum or anything. It's because it doesn't get down to that safe temperature fast enough. It it Mm. goes so slowly because it's encased in the metal that you're really allowing stuff to grow in Germany. Okay. Yeah. Whereas if you throw it into a Tupperware, it gets colder faster. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And then another way that you can end up with botulism that I didn't know, and I probably would have done to myself, is by storing garlic or herbs in oil. And that's like one of my favorite things to do. Yeah. Oil infused. Yeah. 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 You're dipping your bread in. Yes. But I think, I think if you were to do the boiling like oil that I just made and you mm-hmm. have to double boil it. Okay. So that heating would have probably killed any spores okay. that were on it. But if you just make it fancy, like you put a sprig of rosemary right. in your oil and then you don't do that. Well, and they, so what about the ones that are in, sold in stores that are these decorative <sighs> bottles that have these, la- do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? That have these layers of, you know, well, especially Peppers with us and, and they... like the the Southwest, as we call right. ourselves, like I don't know. Oh. I mean, if it's if it's not decorative and it's just stored in oil, it's probably fine uh-huh. because you've already cooked whatever's in there. Yeah, but, but we don't know. We don't know who did it. I mean, if it's, if it's cooked, like, if it's red peppers and they've been cooked and, like, de-skinned, it's probably fine. But okay. I don't know about the decorative ones. Like, I didn't look into this. Okay, this is... You might hmm. want to, like, look and see if on the back it says anything about, like... Decorative use only. Yes. Okay. Yes. Or, like, it was irradiated or something. Gotcha. You know? So, okay. yeah. Okay. And then the last thing that I wanted to say about being really safe with this is that the CDC recommends always using a genuine pressure canner for canning. So your Instant Pot will not work. Mm. And if people want more information on this, they can also find this in the citations. The USDA has a guide to home canning on their website that you can look into for specific details. But you want to not use an Instant Pot. You want to sterilize everything before canning. And you want to refrigerate things with, like, garlic or herbs in them after four days, right? Okay. And then just throw out anything with oil or, or with <laughs> foil or put it in something else. Okay. Like, the foil Deal. is so dangerous. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. And yeah. and what else? Throw, throw out any swollen cans? Well, okay, so... Yes, throw out swollen cans, but actually that has nothing to do with botulism. Oh. Yeah. Okay. It's an indication that a can might have botulism because of inadequate Mm. canning, and it might have something else in it, Mm. but the botulism is not what what causes swelling. Okay. So the swelling is caused by um, other things that took advantage of the anaerobic environment of the can, like thermosacrolictium. Okay. okay. <laughs> so I'm not exactly sure what that is, but it sounds nasty. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> better let's just avoid anything yeah. that's making a can swell. Yeah. Um, because maybe it's botulism or botulinum. Botulinum toxin, yeah. yeah. Maybe it's not. Yeah. I don't want to play that game of uh, roulette. Yeah, but the unfortunate thing is, is you could have a perfectly fine looking can and it could still be contaminated because botulinum spores and toxins don't produce any gas, smell, or visual cues that there's botulinum toxin. Well, that's reassuring. 
So, so how do you test for botulism? So a medical professional will have to take a sample of serum or from, you know, a sample from the wound or a okay. stool sample and then culture it. Okay. And this actually isn't something that toxicologists test for. So if okay. somebody were to die from botulism, which we had a case while I was at the coroner's office of somebody who died. Okay. It was an older woman and her two adult children, and the adult children were in the hospital. Okay. So they might have confirmed it through serum tests of the mm-hmm. children, or, I mean, it was in her, her case story that they had, like, mm. potatoes that they were freezing and then reheating and freezing and then reheating and freezing oh, and then no. reheating. Yeah. And so... I don't know. They could have just, like, suspected, like, mm-hmm. maybe she experienced paralysis or something. Mm. But it's not something that we typically test for. And I don't think it's something we even could test for. It's, a, you know, it's a spore and it's a toxin and it's right. not, like, a, a, a drug that we're looking for. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Are there things that could be confused for botulism? Yes. There's actually a number of things that can be refu- uh, confused for botulism. Okay. Guillain-Barre syndrome could be re- confused for it, and I think that causes some muscle weakness. Mm. Bacterial or chemical food poisoning because of the nausea and the vomiting. Right. Tick paralysis, which oh. sounds like all sorts of fun. Right. <laughs> uh, chemical intoxication, like carbon monoxide poisoning mm. or opioid intoxication, where right. you get that paralysis of right. the respiratory system and, you know, there might be, like, nausea and vomiting, vomiting associated. Yeah. Okay. And then mushroom poisoning, poliomyelitis, and psychiatric illness because okay. we're just going to throw everything into yeah, this let's list. Just, yeah. <laughs> and so that's, yeah, that makes it hard when you go to the hospital, your doctor, and you present with these system, symptoms mm-hmm. because it could be so many different things. Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so what about for kids? Does it show up differently since they had those flo- little floppy baby syndrome yeah, symptoms? Yeah, it can show up as a number of things. It could be sepsis, it could be meningitis, it could be Rye syndrome, which is something that happens when you give babies aspirin and it affects oh. their liver. Okay. And I would assume that would be slightly different because I think you get kind of jaundice when you have Rye mm. syndrome, but I mean, for a baby, like, babies are so different, so who knows? Right. Yeah. And then another thing that it can be confused for that I didn't mention is that it can be confused for nerve agent contamination. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fun. Nerve agents are also um, acetylcholine inhibitors, and so it, they present very similarly. And, like, most people obviously are not dealing with nerve agents, right. and that goes back to attacks on the Japanese subway. That was mm-hmm. a nerve agent for bioterrorism, again. Right. Like, you could be concerned that you were exposed to it, but... Some of the pesticides that we use are essentially nerve agents, and so a lot of the people who are at risk of this are people who work on farms and people who work with trees and crops and things Mm, like that. And so it is not unreasonable that people could have presentation of nerve agents, Mm -hmm. but actually, you know, botulism. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Well, that's a little scary. Um, Interesting. Interesting. But, I mean, I guess when there's that few cases every year, it's not something that I'm going to live in fear of every day, um, huddled in my closet with my blanket over my head. Yeah. See, it's so funny that you say that because it's, like, one of my, like, big fears. (laughs) It's, like, I know it's irrational, and I know it is. My husband gives me crap all the time because, you know, I'm, like, you can't reheat beans more than once. And, like, you can't store potatoes like that. And don't cook potatoes like that when we're camping. And he's, like... How many cases of botulism did you get working at the coroner's office? And it's like, one. But all it takes is one time. And then you might not be able to see well. I know. Or there you'd have that irreversible damage that you'd have to spend years in recovery for. Yeah. I think it's a fair fear. (laughs) But that's good information. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) 
Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineko. Stay safe, and remember, the dose makes the poison. Poison.